Hurtado. <laughs> Marco, if you're Hispanic, Marco. <laughs> So glad you're here, man. I'm so excited. We got a lot of stuff going on this morning. Hopefully, you guys, you brought your bags back uh, for our Community Impact Initiative, benefiting our pantry, which really benefits, uh, you know, struggling households in our area in Camarillo. And uh, there is still time. I did a Facebook Live this morning. If you forgot, go to the store and uh, go straight to the store, grab, grab the stuff, and come back and bring it, and, and we'll still take it and uh, use it for the glory of God. So uh, super excited about that. We had Ralph here this morning, our pastor emeritus. Uh, had his uh, uh, fundraiser for GDI last night. I was there. So wonderful, wonderful thing going on. It's great to have a relationship. Uh, pastor Ralph, if you don't know him, he did a couple things around here the last 30 years. And... Uh, <laughs> Built this building, you know, hammered in every nail himself. Uh, that's exaggeration. Anyway, uh, so Ralph, this morning, I, I got to announce, please, please come back next week. Next week will mark a year of me being at Camarillo Community Church. Yeah, it's been a year. And so, yeah. Yeah, some people are excited about that. That's so cool. Some, some people aren't. Anyway, so... <laughs> So anyway, next week I've invited my mentor, uh, Dr. Philip Howard, from my church in San Francisco. That's, I, I worked there for 10 years, uh, came to the Lord there. He's like a spiritual father to me. The guy can preach. In fact, you guys might need to start practicing your amens today for next week when he preaches because he's used to some amens flying when he preaches and whatnot. But what a treat he's going to be here. You're not going to want to miss it. I think you're going to be able to go, man, I can see where David gets this. And he kind of does that like him over there kind of thing. So I'm super excited for him to be here, kind of marking our year together, and then you can see kind of who had great influence, spiritual influence over me, spiritual father to me. So make sure you come back. If you're our guest, again, I'm David Hurtado, lead pastor. Love to meet you. I'll be outside afterwards. Do that every week to make sure that I try to make, make myself available. I'm so excited. I love teaching the scriptures, and we got a doozy of one in the book of Mark today, but before we get there, we got to start off with what they call an introduction. <laughs> and, and here it is. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm so pleased please, and I've got to be careful I say this, because not everybody chooses the same path in life, but, but it certainly was God's will for my, my family and my wife and I as we prayed about this. But I'm so pleased that we made the sacrificial decision many years ago to have my wife stay at home and be quote unquote a stay at home mom. Not everybody does that, and it's not, it's not everybody's calling, I get that, but when you were raised like I was, the epitome of a latchkey kid, um, if you could even call it that, more like no parents around kid, you know, at all, ever. Mom would leave before we woke up and come home before, after we went to bed. It was that, that bad. We would literally took care of ourselves, cooked, cleaned, uh, went to the laundromat. All those things were done on our own because we didn't have a father, didn't have a mother around. And so uh, and Meredith has a similar story of just uh, being a latchkey kid. And so we have, you know, over the years said, we're going to do whatever we can do, if that means driving old cars, whatever it is, to make sure that somebody is at home giving guidance to our children. One of the things I'm really excited about is there's somebody at home to give guidance to children in areas where I wish I had guidance looking back now 30 years ago or that I really needed guidance. Um, it would have been very beneficial to have guidance in some certain situations. Let me give you an example. For instance, like the day I decided I could speed up the process of how to clean the restroom. 
And, and they have these things, they're these cleaning products. I, I wrote them down because they all have specializations. They, they, they have these different cleaning products for different things. They have this thing called Ajax, which is kind of like the sandpapery material, and it's, and it's you know, you, you add water, and it really does some deep cleaning. They have this other thing called soft scrub. I don't know if they still sell it today, but, you know, it's spray, spray foam stuff, and you would use that one because a soap scum would get on kind of the, the, the tile of the, of the shower walls, and this was very good at, at taking off the soap scum on that one. Right? They had this thing called Pine Saw. I really liked Pine Saw because it smelled wonderful. It'd make the house smell so good, and for some reason, the tile would glisten and would shine. You know, that's, that was its specialization. And then they had these other ones that are like for heavier duty things, like bleach. If you couldn't get something out, you'd use bleach. And then there's the mother of all substances, chemicals, and really it's like the, the ingredient they used to make bombs, um, is ammonia. And you could use ammonia, and it would like for sure clean. So I learned all these different chemicals and their specializations, and then learned that that's how you could clean your restroom. And I thought to myself, I bet you I could speed this whole thing up. I bet if I just took all those substances and put them in the tub all together and swish them around, that you would come up with like a superhero potion that would clean your restroom in 15 minutes. And, and not having a mom or a dad around, I just did that. <laughs> and then I'm breathing in. That's why I have the asthma today, I think, you know, because I'm breathing and I'm opening the window. Man, this is, this is potent stuff, you know. I'm getting lightheaded. I'm going, I'm going to go downstairs and lay down for a little while. And, and, okay, uh, if you're a kid and you don't, have, you're like, you don't have parents, don't do that. That'll kill you. It literally will kill you. You cannot mix bleach and ammonia together. It makes a substance that bombs are made out of. Whatever. You know, so, and so, so, you know, and so I would do that. And, and looking back now, I'm going, I'm so glad to have a, a wife who can, you know, help our kids with these type of things so that I make the same mistakes. But I learned a lot from the situation. Besides, you know, you know, killing your brain cells. You know, I learned a lot. And, and what I learned was that you can't just add substances together sometimes. Sometimes you have two different substances. They're good in and of themselves. And when you add them together, they can produce something that's actually lethal. All right? So you can't just add things on. You can't add things on. It's, it's, it's not meant to be that way. You can't always just add something on. My wife is convinced of this. I always, you know, if I don't like the spaghetti, I add ketchup. And she's like, that's crazy. Sometimes I add brown sugar, and that makes it awesome. Um, but people think I'm crazy for that, but don't knock it till you try it. A little brown sugar in your spaghetti. But you can't just add things on in life sometimes. And really, that's where we're going to be headed today in the scriptures in the, in the book of Mark. Uh, and, and really kind of looking at this idea of adding things on, how would Jesus handle it when he was approached as an add-on? When Jesus came on the scene and, and they begin to approach him as if he's an add-on, how would he respond to that? What would his approach be in that? How would he respond? And how was that response so polarizing? And why was it so polarizing? And what was the irony of those, of, uh, between those people that Jesus hung out with and then the people that he didn't hang out with? And why was he obstinate towards certain groups? And why was he welcoming towards other groups? And so for that, I'm going to need you to turn in the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2. So open up your phone right now. Get in there, highlight, take notes. If you're in a growth group this week, you're going to need the notes uh, to be able to have the discussion. I hope you're enjoying your growth group. My growth group is awesome. The God Godliest people in this church are in my growth group. It's awesome. <laughs> anyway, so, um, you know, take notes, get in there, and you know, whether you have a hardcore Bible or whether you have a phone, and be there with us. So the overarching question we're going to look at today is, what made Jesus such a polarizing individual? 
What made Jesus such a, to this day he's so polarizing. What made him so polarizing in the first century and what makes him so polarizing today? And the first thing we're gonna see is that what made him so polarizing is that he welcomed the non-religious. And this is a really kind of an ironic thing. He welcomed the non-religious. Folks who would not classify themselves as being religious, those are the people that Jesus would welcome. Uh, almost the opposite we think. If you're coming in, you're representing a religious movement, why are you welcoming the non-religious folks? And so let's look at that in um, uh, Mark chapter two and verse 13. It says this. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake and a large crowd came to him. He's done several miracles at this point in the book of Mark. They all know about him and whenever they hear he's in town, they all run to him. And he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there, for there were many who followed him. So not only did he welcome this, this, this Eli, or Levi guy who's a tax collector, he goes to his house, they have a meal together where all of his buddy tax collectors and sinners are there, and it says many of them were following Jesus. And so we see what makes Jesus such a polarizing individual? He welcomed the non-religious. He, he associated with people that you would not have expected him to associate with. Levi, uh, it, Levi actually his name gets changed to Matthew and he is the very Matthew that writes the book of Matthew. In fact, when his name gets changed to Matthew, that, the meaning of the word Matthew would be gift of God and so Levi becomes Matthew who writes the book of Matthew which is the very gift of God. What is the significance of Jesus calling a tax collector? Now, he wasn't just saying, hey, I want you to be one of my followers. I want you to be one of my leaders in my movement. You're gonna write a book to the Jews called the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. I want you to be a leader. What is significant about this? This is where you wanna take some notes. Uh, he was, uh, if he is indeed a tax collector or in that crowd, he would be viewed as a despised individual, fraudulent a fraudulent individual. These were positions that the Roman government said, okay, here we go, we need a tax, you know, like any government, any good government taxes you. Tax the people so we can collect money, okay? And so the Romans said, we can collect it ourselves or we can hire out, or in this case, sell positions of leadership where people would, would, would collect the taxes for us. So here's how that would work. Uh, we have this new position, uh, this uh, city of Camarillo, we need a tax collector, who wants it? Everybody raise their hand, I want it, I want it. Okay, we're gonna sell it to the highest bidder. Whoever bids the highest for this position of tax collector, uh, we will give it to you. And so Levi, and somewhere along the way, said, I'll buy it, I want it, I'll buy into this thing. And he buys the position of tax collector. Why would he do that? The reason he would do that is because the Romans set up this system where, hey, listen, we're gonna expect a quota of taxes. But anything above and beyond that, you can charge, uh, you know, a, a, a kind of an upfront fee, and we're not ever gonna question you about it. And so the idea is you can upcharge people as you're taxing them for the Romans. You can upcharge them and you can become rich yourself. So now you can imagine why rich people go, I want to buy into that thing. That's awesome. And there was no standard by which they would regulate how much you upcharge somebody. 
And so Matthew or Levi as a tax collector would go, okay, uh, we're going to tax you and uh, I think I'm going to upcharge you this much money. And when they didn't have the amount that he upcharged, he could then give them a loan, a high interest loan where they would have to pay him back for money that they didn't really own the Roman government. It was just to him. And so tax collectors were very wealthy uh, and very despised because they were viewed as extortionists. So that's who Jesus is calling right now, somebody fraudulent, upcharging extortionist. And really, his kind of taxation would be kind of a border taxation. So I don't know if you guys have ever been to Mexico and you come back in the United States and they, they go through this whole customs thing and, and they basically look at the goods that you brought from one country to another and then they levy taxes based on what you're bringing in. You, you've seen that before, that kind of thing, maybe been a part of that. Uh, Levi would be on the border. Okay, before you cross, you're using our international highway, so to speak. Before you cross in, we want to see what goods you have and then I'm going to tax you based on that. And that's what, what Levi was doing. And so based on the, 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 the system that the Romans set up, I'll tax you this much for them. And then I'm going to add a little upcharge for myself. Probably not more, more, not just little, but probably a large upcharge. Now, his name is Levi. And so Levi gives us the indication that he may have been of the line, the line of the Levites. If that's true, then he's a highly educated individual who is very literate and who's supposed to be using those gifts and privilege to be leading his people closer to God as being part of the religious priesthood, the establishment of the line of Aaron. You're supposed to use your literacy and your education to bring us closer to God. And instead, what you did is you bought out this taxation thing where you're going to rob us of all of our money. You see, you couldn't be a tax collector unless you had some kind of education because you have to learn how to, you have to know how to speak a different language. So instead of using his education for good things, uh, promoting his people uh, uh, to a place of understanding with God, he's actually shoving people down and robbing from. So this would be like the worst insult of injury. He's the most ultimate traitor you could be. Instead of using his literacy to help people understand God's word, he's using it to rob them of taxes. Now you gotta understand the irony of this situation where Jesus goes, oh, tax collector, leave, I follow me. I mean, the, the scandalousness that it would have been for everybody watching, why him? Why him? And in fact, if we go a little further and we say, this is Levi, whose names get changed to Matthew, who writes the book of Matthew. God, why in the world would you use Matthew to write one of the Gospels? And then why would you use him to write the Gospel written to the Jews? Just by his very authorship, they would say, no, we discredit the whole thing. He's a traitor. He's been robbing us for years. Why would God do that? And God has a way of doing these things over and over and over again. And we see in the book of 1 Corinthians that he uses the foolish things that confound the wise. If it works, then it must have been God. If it works, then it must have been God. And so God does call Levi, turn his name to Matthew, and he does write the gospel to the Jews who would despise him for his very occupation prior to coming to know Jesus Christ. And it says in the text that, that Levi leaves everything behind. So he's sitting there, I paid into this thing, paid a lot of money into it, I've got this really good living out of this thing, but yet I will leave it all because Jesus Christ just called me to be a part of his movement. I mean, this is unbelievable. And by the way, with the disciples, the other disciples who were fishermen that we saw earlier in the book of Mark, and, and they, leave, they leave their whole jobs, they leave their parents, they leave everything. When Jesus Christ dies on the cross, what do they do? They go back to fishing. They go back to fishing. This is one where you can't go back to. 
Because somebody else is going to buy into that sucker and it's not going to be available for you. So when Levi says, I will follow you and I'll be one of your disciples and I'll lead this movement, he's actually making a huge choice. I'm no longer choosing riches. I'm throwing that away. I'm throwing everything away so I can follow Jesus Christ. And I just sometimes like to imagine like his thought process. I can't believe that he just called me a social outcast to be a part of his movement. I'll leave everything for that. I'll leave everything for that. Last week in, in, uh, in, in the beginning of chapter two, we saw Jesus declare that he can forgive sins. Remember the paralytic and he heals the guy uh, the, the, uh, of his paralysis, but at the same time he says, I've, I've forgiven your sins. And this week we see Jesus Christ do that to the most worst of sinners in the culture of the time. I'll forgive a tax collector. But not only did he forgive him, he dined with him. Let's go to verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And so Jesus goes to the guy's house. It's kind of like a, a farewell party. Levi said, all right, I'm leaving. I, I, I'm retiring from this career. I'm going to go into full-time ministry. I'm going to go with Jesus Christ. Let's have a party. Not unconventional, especially when you convert it into a new spiritual faith in life. To have a party, they have a party. Jesus is there. And all of his tax collector friends come. And they're eating at the table together, which would be a very intimate thing. More intimate than we understand it today in our culture. A very, very intimate process where, where, where we're saying not only are we sharing a meal together, but we're sharing life together. Uh, they, they were equivalent to each other. And I mean, nobody in that room would say, you would have to know, Jesus is saying, I'm deeming acceptable the persons who are unacceptable in this event. Those who have been considered unacceptable are acceptable to me. That's what he's doing. In fact, the Pharisees we're going to see later on the stories, they don't even go in the, in the house. They won't go in the building. No, because that is unacceptable to them to hang out with people of such ill repute. This was scandalous. It'd be, and I'm going to share this because I just want you to get the feeling what it'd be. It'd be like a pastor hanging out at a strip club. All right? Do you see how that makes you feel? That's how it made them feel. Now, Jesus had the ability to hang out with folks that would never contaminate him, but he would contaminate them. He was God, very God, man, very God, the Messiah. And so when he touched a leper, remember, he didn't get infected with leprosy. No, the leper got infected with the righteousness of God. And so he has this ability to, to, to hang out with folks where he's not contaminated. This pastor can't go hang out at a strip club without being contaminated, so I'm not going to do that. But the idea was that's how scandalous it was for him to be hanging out with these folks. In fact, there were probably prostitutes in that room with them. That's the whole crowd. Tax collectors, prostitutes, a whole bit. That's who he's hanging out with. Eating for the Pharisees, who would be the religious leaders, was quite, uh, on the opposite side, a quite holy occasion. And so they view this thing, there's too much potential for me to be tainted in this event. So I would never do that. I would never step in the house, never talk to them, never eat with them, never do anything about that. And by the way, Jesus, what does it say about you that the people who are following you are these so illegitimate folks, these less than common folks, these, the worst of sinners, that's who's following you. And this is what Jesus, you're talking about a polarizing individual. What is he doing that's so polarizing? He's hanging out with people that nobody of a religious sect would ever hang out with. He welcomed them. He hung out with them. The despise of the society. But not only did he do that, he would also reject those you might think he would embrace. What made Jesus such a polarizing individual? Number one, 
He welcomed those that were non-religious. And number two, he ostracized the religious. So this is amazing. So he walks on the scene, and those people that you would think he would shun, he welcomes. And those people that you would think he would welcome, he shuns. He ostracized the religious. Let's look at verse 16 through 22. It says this. When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners, quote unquote, and the tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? What's he doing? And on hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come to call the righteous. I've, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. The irony is they both have the same need. But since you don't recognize your need, I'll just call you righteous. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. People who know they need me. That's who I've come for. Verse 18. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. So this is another religious activity. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples, John the Baptist that is, and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? They're doing all this religious activity and you guys aren't. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast when he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. And this is a first reference of Jesus' ministry where he says, I will be taken away. That's a violent word, talking about his death. And on that day, they will fast. Verse 21, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, making it tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wines. And if he does, the wine will burst into skins, and both the wine and the skins will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wine skins. So what is going on here? All right, we're going we're gonna to kind of do a little, we're going to do a little side note here, a little tutorial. This is another place you could take good notes on and understand what is going on here. Why is Jesus pushing back against the the religious movement? Why is he going up against the religious establishment? You would think him being religious, these people believe in the word of God, they believe in the law of Moses. Why is Jesus pushing back if the law, if the law of God and the law of Moses was of God, why is Jesus pushing back? Doesn't make sense until you understand the background of what's going on. So here's, here's what we got going on. I want you to understand this is the word of God and this is, this defines morality. This is where we find out what is moral and what is immoral. Today, we, 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 you know, we, we think of that as a bad word. And if I say something that, if I say to somebody, that's immoral, they go, oh, I can't believe you're calling me immoral. Oh, no, 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 take the sting off of that. Just understand, if you look in the word of God and you look at God's definition of things, there are things that you could do that are moral and there are things that you could do that are immoral. Things that you can do that, that are pleasing to God and things that you would do that are not pleasing to God. That's all it means. Based on the word of God, this is morality. We find morality in here. And so the idea as your pastor and as, as, as leading this church, we want to try our best to put this word up high. We do this all the time. We want to follow its word. We don't want to go one step, step too far, and we don't want to go one step too short. What it says we do, we, 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 we accept its definitions of morality, and we follow it. So everybody's on the same page with that. The Pharisees came around, and they had this new system where they did this. Here's the word of God. And what we're going to do is we know that it's the standard of morality, but we've got an idea. Let's put a fence around this thing, about 10 feet around every side. And we're going to put a hedge of protection around this thing. And now, if nobody kind of touches the fence, then they will never touch the word of God either. If nobody does, if we add these additional rules and this fence of protection, and if nobody gets close to our fence, then they'll never offend God in his word. It's the idea is kind of like this. There's a fire out there, and we're all worried about getting burnt. And so I don't want to fall into the fire, so we're going to put a fence around the fire. And if we don't get close to the fence, we will never get burnt. That's what they were doing, and they added all these 
these regulations and mandates and these extra rules. And so every time Jesus butts up against the Pharisees, he's not butting up against the word of God. He's butting up against this fence of protection. He's like, wait, that's not in the word of God. You're adding rules, and I will not be subject to your man-made rules. I will only be subject to the word of God. If we're not careful, we can still do this today. It's called legalism, where we have the word of God tells me what's moral and immoral, but I'm adding extra rules because I want to make myself feel good about myself. I have a marriage badge system where now I'm doing these extra activities that make me even more spiritual. And what happened was these guys adopted this uh, philosophy or this new system, and what it ended up becoming was a, 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 a works-based system. What was the faith of God now became a works-based system where I'm earning my way and earning my way to, my, to where God would be pleased with me, and I am so righteous I don't need Jesus. And that's where the Pharisees failed. Because I do all these extra rules, I, I almost don't have a need for God. I'm equal I measure up to him now. And that was a problem. So what would happen is you could score high in this merit badge system and still score low in the heart. So I'm doing all these activities that I should and shouldn't be doing or whatever, all these extra rules, and I'm doing those very well, but my heart was still far from God, and Jesus was saying, your hearts are far from me. Your hearts are far from me. You do all these activities, but, but your hearts are far from it. Let me give you an example. Uh, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, so to light a fire would be, uh, to make a fire would be work, so you're not supposed to do that. So the Pharisees say, well, you know what? You're not even supposed to strike a match. That's the extra rule. You're not even supposed to strike a match. If you strike a match, you're working. To this day, if you go see devout, uh, um, um, devout Jewish people uh, on the Sabbath, they won't press a button for an elevator. Because when you press a button, it lights a spark, and that's lighting a fire, and you can't work on the Sabbath. That's these extra rules that we're talking about. There were these guys called the bleeding Pharisees. They're my favorite guys. They would take passages of the Old Testament and say, keep the law of God on your mind, and they literally would get a leather pouch, put the law of God, and put it on their foreheads because it says keep the law of God on your mind. And they would take that literally, put it on their foreheads, and they'd walk around because they didn't want to lust. They'd put their heads down, they'd close their eyes, and they'd walk around, and they hit walls, and their foreheads would bleed. They're called the bleeding Pharisees. And the whole idea was, we, uh, we're so godly, we won't even, even let them have the potential of me lusting over a woman. If I can't see them, I can't lust over them, so therefore I close my eyes. And they added all these new rules and regulations to the law of God, and if we didn't hit that, that fence, then we would never infringe on the law of God. And Jesus says, no, I'm not following any of those rules. Uh, I'm not playing by your rules. I'm playing by God's rules. I'm not going to play by those rules. So, so let me show you what it, what it looked like in this passage. Uh, as it relates to uh, uh, um, responding to the charge of, of keeping questionable company. Uh, the Pharisees were separatists. They, they were set apart. We're holy, so we don't associate with anybody who's not holy. And so it really was a, a proudness of their heart. We don't talk to tax collectors. We don't talk to prostitutes. We don't hang out. And Jesus comes and he talks to them and, and, and leads them to, to a relationship closer to God. So you can imagine they're so offended by this. If we, the, the godly, the, the epitome of godliness on this earth will not associate with lowly people, then how can you say, Jesus, that you represent God? That was their whole argument. And Jesus' answer was in verse 17, uh, it is the sick that need a physician. Let's look at verse 17. That's exactly what he says. 
On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. The irony there is the Pharisees are, are as sinful, if not more, than the, than the tax collectors. At least the tax collector can, can recognize it and understand he needs the mercy of God. They need it. That's the irony. But I came to be a physician for the sick. Can you imagine a doctor in the, in the ER who refuses to aid a dying patient? Can you imagine that? This is what you're skilled for. This is what you're for. You're supposed to run towards those situations. One of the things that's so ugly and, and, and horrible about this massacre in, in Parkland, Florida, is we're finding out that there was police officers who would not enter the building. There were armed police officers hanging out outside that would not enter the building and engage the shooter. Why is that so horrible? Because that's their job, to, pr- 